Marilyn, thank you for asking me to come and tell my story. Um, my name is Anna, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. Hey, guys, it's really nice to be here. My sobriety date is July 3rd of 2006, so I just turned 12, um, which is a miracle. Um, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, so I'm really happy about that. Um, I'm from Texas, and I grew up um, in a town called Denton in between Dallas and Fort Worth. It's a college town. Um, my parents were academia all the way. Um, so I got a really, really strong, clear message early on that intelligence was pretty much top priority. If you weren't smart, you didn't have a lot of value. Um, so it was kind of an interesting childhood. There's a lot of good, um, but I think it's important to mention a few things because I think that um, it really helped my alcoholism really take off. Um, one particular story, um, I can trace my alcoholism back to way before I started drinking. Um, I would just get weird about like this certain outfit and I wanted to wear it all the time. And then there was like this one food and that was the only food I wanted to eat. Um, and I love to lie. Um, that was just really exciting to see if I could get you to, you know, to buy my stuff pretty much. And um, my parents are both um, teachers, so I'm in first grade and we're going over the color words and I hadn't learned my color words because I had something else to do, I'm sure, at six. And um, <laughs> so I told the teacher, oh, my, my parents just said, how come you're so clearly not prepared, you don't know your color words. And, I said, oh, my parents are too busy. Their teachers are just too busy helping other people to help me. Um, <laughs> so that got back to the house, um, and I got to learn how to spell fuchsia, chartreuse, <laughs> lavender, maroon. Um, the next day, I was, like, schooled in color words, and my mother brought that up the rest of my life and would always be like, the teacher never believed us. She, I mean, she just totally bought your story. Um, so that was kind of a bone of contention. Um, and there's books everywhere, and I thought that was really exciting. So um, I went to school my first day of first grade at a Barbie lunch uh, box. It was amazing. I was just ready to do the thing. Um, I went to first grade the first day, and then they didn't teach me how to read. So, you know, that immediate gratification had already kicked in. So I went home after that first day and said, you know, they don't know what they're doing there. I don't know how to read, and so I'm just I'm not going to do this. Um, and my parents were like, okay. Um, so later on, I was outside playing, and I came in and noticed that the car was gone, and my mom was gone, and my brother was gone, and there was like this place, kind of common area in the kitchen where we'd leave notes and stuff. And so there's a note on the table, and I was like, "What's going on?" I gave it to my dad, and he said, "Oh, mm, uh, your mom and your brother don't want to live with us anymore, and so they're gone. So I think you're gonna have to start learning how to help out around the house a little bit more." And he just went back to the paper, and I just lost it um, and was really, like, scared and upset. And, of course, you know, Mom and my brother come back home, and um, my dad looked at me and said, you know, you got some choices to make. You can either count on people to read for you for the rest of your life, or you can go back to school tomorrow. So, so I went back to school, and I read a lot um, to this day. Um, but my dad had that kind of quirky sense of humor, and so there was always this kind of heightened, like, you kind of had to have your game on growing up. Uh, my mom was a real neat freak, and she told us to always, like, put our, our shoes in our room, and I couldn't be bothered. You know, I'd get home from school and kick my shoes off, and 
one day I couldn't find him and we walked to school too, um, not too terribly far, but you know, it's a distance. And so the next morning I'm like, I can't find my shoes, I can't find my shoes. And my dad just looks over the paper, did you check the deep freeze? Um, and he'd like wet all our shoes and throw them in the freezer. And so I got to walk to school in freezing shoes and never left my shoes by the front door anymore. Um, so, so some of it was fun and some of it was like not so great, you know. Um, there was just a lot of those kind of messages. We didn't get to really watch TV because when you watch TV, you don't think. And so we got to watch two hours a week and you had to write down your justification of what two hours of TV you wanted to watch and then present it on Sundays. Um, and normally I was too busy playing on Sunday, so I didn't get the list in. And so there was no TV. And then the weeks that I would remember to get the list in, like it is damn near impossible. There's some older people in here that will understand this. Really, really hard to justify why you want to watch Love Boat and Fantasy Island back to back. You know, it's just... Um, so <laughs> I have, um, you know, so lots of good stuff going on there, but again, like really trained early on to be this real type A. I'm still to this day, if, you know, I'm going to get a 98 on a test, I'm going to agonize for a week on the two points that I missed. Um, and still really my hyper self-critical voice is insane. And that's one of the things that I work on the most. Um, it's never good enough, like ever. Um, so that's always been a struggle, and that continues to be a struggle. And, of course, alcoholism really helps with that quite a bit because you drink enough and you just don't care, you know. Um, so that's kind of what that, that looked like. I was in a gifted program, so I went to school with the same, like, 28 people from pre-K all the way through um, high school graduation and graduated early. Um, I started college when I was 16. Um, I do not recommend that. Um, I was book smart enough, but I had no emotional intelligence to handle that. And so that's when my drinking really, really took off quite significantly. Um, the first time I had alcohol, I was 10, 10 or 11. Um, I was at a wedding with the family, and they had this champagne fountain. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. Uh, but I was unsupervised, and so you know I was really at the champagne quite a bit. And I remember it like clear as day because I remember going to the restroom and I've got this incredible buzz I'm all powerful I am like beautiful and strong and amazing and confident and I look in the mirror and I'm like who is that um you know it just it didn't it just didn't compute there's this kind of awkward freckle-faced kid looking at me and I'm like mm-hmm like that doesn't that doesn't work like I don't know who that is and and already the self-loathing I'm not crazy about her but this way I feel it if I can just not look at the mirror and feel like this all the time I'm gold and I remember very clearly kind of storing and filing that like note to self that stuff's amazing um at around 10 or 11 and so when I got back to it um, at 16, 15, 16, um, like it was amazing. Um, I think, you know, it's kind of hard to say, but I would guess that um, full-blown alcoholic by the time I was 17, um, and then pretty much carried that. <coughs> I didn't get sober till I was 39, so that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of drinking. Um, I was very highly functional, um, because again, in my family, to be anything but was unacceptable. Um, I kind of feel sorry for us highly functional addicts and alcoholics because I think we can drag it out a lot longer. Because um, I was able to go to work, you know, and to maintain really well. Um, I want to briefly mention my brother, um, which is very important because I didn't talk about him for years. 
in recovery. It took me a while to make my peace with that. Um, and I will say today that I recognize that he's a mentally ill person that I choose to not have in my life now. Um, but he was a mentally ill person. Uh, he was four years older than me, so by default, he was the babysitter. Um, and he's like a sociopath. Um, he's got some really significant mental health issues, and he was very, very physically and emotionally abusive to me. Um, it didn't register for me for a really long time that I was a victim of child abuse. Because um, my mom and dad were these smart teachers that were kind of cool and quirky, right? So I really, it took me a long time to make that connection that I am a victim of child abuse. It was just at the hands of my brother and not at my parents. So I didn't recognize it. Um, we only had one door that locked in the house and that was the bathroom and my parents would go out, uh, which they did a lot. Um, I'd just go straight to the bathroom and lock the door and wait. Um, and he would get a screwdriver and I could just hear it. He'd take the hinges off the bathroom door and just wail on me. Um, and then real smart too, you know, bruises where they're not gonna show and like most really good abused children of course I wasn't going to say a word about it so there's there's the secret keeping now which as we all know is a big part of the disease so yeah he put the door back in the hinges and we'd go about our business and um, never talked to my parents about it um, so that was pretty hard um, my mother was like this natural Al-Anon she didn't know it but um, she would see his behaviors. There was a lot of drug addiction with him, a lot of mental health, a lot of raging. Um, and she would literally just be like, I love you, you're my son, but I don't like you. Um, and she could really kind of separate that out. Uh, my father really struggled um, on his deathbed even, was just bemoaning my brother and what he could have done differently. Um, my brother's got real attachment kind of issues and so he checked out pretty early on. So he left home probably when I was around 14 or so, and we actually had a few years of kind of calmness around the house. Um, but I do think it's significant because there was so much chaos with him around um, that I really slipped into this kind of combination of I'm going to be this hero child, and if I can just make the straight A's, and if I can just be pretty, and if I can just be thin, and if I can just keep my room clean, all this is going to go away. Um, and sort of that lost child, too. It was very quiet. Um, and I still struggle with that. One of the things that you guys have taught me is when I get angry at someone, it's okay to look at them and say, I'm mad or my feelings are hurt. Um, typical MO for me is if I get upset, like, uh, where, where'd she go? <laughs> I'm just, I'm gone and I'm going to stay gone. So for me to actually express those uncomfortable feelings and do that today, I, I learned that in these rooms and I'm really, really grateful for that. Um, so I don't want to bore you with the big drunk log. We all have it. Um, I drank and I drank and I drank. And then, of course, I'm 16 and I'm in college. And so there was all sorts of other substances that got discovered. Um, I remember at one point um, I was doing a lot of other things. And I'd been up for probably four or five days or so. And I ran into my dad at a garage sale. Not cool. <laughs> it's like 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm definitely looking like I'm not garage sailing. Um, I'm just kind of wandering around. And, uh, <laughs> my, my dad is like, why don't you come to my office tomorrow? And I was like, okay. So uh, I went to his office at the university. Uh, he ran the students of English department. And so I went to his big office and he just looked at me and was like, whatever you're doing, you need to stop. Um, and at that point, I was all ready to like, let me leash in there and tell you everything I'm doing. And he's like, nope, like I don't want to hear it because if I hear it, then I'm going to have to tell your mother. And I don't want to do that. So you figure out what you need to do. 
to stop whatever it is that you're doing. Um, my family was very polite. We didn't really surface level kind of stuff. Um, my mother, I'm not kidding you, would not go get the mail without putting on her lipstick because you don't know who you're going to run into. Um, so it was this very polite conversation with my father of whatever you're doing, stop it. Um, so <laughs> I decided I would move to San Francisco to change my ways. Um, so I moved out to California. Um, it took me less than 24 hours to get a connect. Um, and pretty much just kind of happily carried on in California what I was doing in Texas. Um, then my mother got diagnosed with cancer, um, and I was 19 or 20. Um, my mom's a pretty remarkable woman, and that was a pretty earth-shaking thing to happen. Um, so I uh, moved back to Texas so that I could be there for her. She really wanted to die at home. Um, so I did all the training so that I could be at home with her and administered as much of the medicines and those kind of things as I could. My dad's kind of this lofty, head in the clouds, kind of poet, English guy. And so like the day-to-day -day stuff with my mom was not happening. And then my brother, of course, is in the wind. So, so I got to take care of my mom while she uh, went through cancer and ultimately died um, from that. So that was pretty tough. Um, I love the delusional, lofty thinking that I had. So my mother has cancer and I'm like, I cannot do these drugs and watch my mother go through chemotherapy. That would not be right. Uh, so I quit doing everything but alcohol um, and taking her pain medication too. Um, <laughs> but I remember being like, I am like right up there with Florence Nightingale, you know, just doing this thing. Um, that was, you know, a, a pretty probably the most impactful thing that ever happened in my life, especially at that age. I've had some other impactful things, of course, but that was pretty, that was a pretty big deal. That, um, that was pretty, pretty hard on me. Um, now looking back and having that happen at that early age, it's absolutely God working for me because I cannot even count um, how many sponsees I get that are women whose mothers get diagnosed with cancer. Um, I've got one right now, and it, the first couple I was like, this is weird, what a coincidence, and now I'm like, no, no, this is, this is all by design, and so I get to walk a lot of women through losing their mothers, and it's really hard, and I will even tell my sponsors, like, when we're doing this work, and we're doing these resentment, um, cancer inventories, and these things, I'm going to cry. Um, I'm not over it. I'm even tearing up even thinking about my mom right now. There's just some things that you don't get over. Um, and the best advice I got around that is like quit looking to go back to normal, just find your new normal. And so I get to kind of relive, relive that grief and that peace and that acceptance over and over again um, with these women. And it's, it's absolutely been remarkable. Um, so now I understand why that had to happen to me, um, which is really cool. My mother had the same best friend for like 30 some odd years and her mother died <clears throat> probably about eight years ago and this is a woman who's like this like high academia you know, smart like everything that I'm supposed to have been and just this amazing strong woman has been in my life forever and she's you know 20 some odd years older than me and she called me and said I need you to come to Denton and I need you to be with me because you've lived a lot longer with the mother um, than I have and I need your help and I need you to help me get through this um, which was just such an honorable thing to get to do, to go home and be with her and be with her at the funeral and teach her how to be motherless, essentially. Um, so that was kind of a really impactful thing. Um, and, of course, the drinking just escalated and escalated. Um, 
I think it's interesting when I think, when I look at my life and how I get moved around and I don't even know why, you know, like I still had not brought to any conscious level that I was a, an abused child and I certainly hadn't done anything as far as trying to work through it. You know, it was still really this very deep kind of thing. And so I ended up taking a job in social work working with abused children. Go figure, right? It took me forever to make that connection. And so I did that job for a really long time really demanding hours. Um, I'm protecting the unprotected, so I deserve to drink as much as possible when I'm not working. So lots of praise from the community about this hardcore job. Um, lots of drinking and lots of people in that field do a lot of drinking as well. And again, with that high functioning thing, I was able to, there's a lot of on-call shifts, and so you're not able to you know, drink for like a week, two weeks at a time while you're doing this work. And um, I was able to just shut it off. So that was really confusing for me. So um, I get this message of, I'm doing all these other drugs. My mom gets cancer. I shut that off. Um, now I've got this job, and I can't drink because I'm at work, so I'm going to shut everything down. And so I told myself, you know, well, I just don't have an addictive personality. You know, mm -hmm. right? Look at me. I can, like, go this time. I wasn't, of course, realizing the complete unmanageability that when I wasn't on call, it was over-the-top crazy drinking. Um, so that's kind of what it looked like. And I just drank and drank and drank. And um, towards the end of my drinking, it was really just isolating. Um, it was just really sad and really awful. And I would literally like get off work on Friday night and then I would just drink. And it was drink, wake up, pass out, vomit, go back to drinking, pass out again, wake up throw up, sleep some more, wake up, drink. Um, and on the weekend, I would literally, that, that time at six, it's like, like right now, where it's like, is it morning and the sun's coming up? Or is it dusk and the sun's going down? Um, and I would literally have to go turn on the TV and figure out where I was in my drinking. Because um, just no sense of time. Um, and I would just turn the phone off and that was it. So I was a real isolated drinker towards the end. Um, so that was just really, it was just dark and horrible and um, miserable. And so I started getting some ideas that, you know, this wasn't really working. Um, so I'm just going to, like, commit suicide. That seems like the next logical thing to do. And I did have quite a love of pills, and I would try and stockpile um, enough pills to kind of do the deal but then I'd get drunk and be like oh a few pills would make this buzz even better and so then I'm even left in this like huge like ball of drunken self-loathing of I can't even kill myself right this is ridiculous and so it was just this miserable every week of how can I get this to end and it just it was just really just miserable um I don't know why, you know, the misery finally, the book talks about the desperation of a drowning man. I don't know why I hit that point, um, but I did have, you know, the fateful night um, when I was like, I just can't, I just can't do this. And there's no pills in the house and there wasn't enough alcohol in the world to do it quickly enough. And so I was, I just decided I was gonna drink Drano. It was the only thing I could find in the house that I thought would do the deal. Um, and I don't know, they're just, you know, sitting on my knees, digging around underneath the kitchen, looking for Drano, and then thinking, like, that's going to hurt. Um, <laughs> you know, and just like, what am I doing? Like, what, like, what is this, you know? And um, 
You know, I'm a dramatic alcoholic, and so for years when I tell this story, I'm like, it was 3 o'clock in the morning, and um, now it was like 11. Uh, <laughs> I finally asked my friend, and it was like 11. Um, but I called my best friend and said, hey, um, like I, I'm either going to kill myself or I need help, and I need it like right now. Like, I recognized that it was a very short window that I had, and thank God um, I have a really good best friend. I met her in college. We've been best friends since we were 17, which is pretty cool. She's still my best friend to this day, and I'm almost 51, so it's a friendship I really cherish. Um, but I called her and said, hey, <laughs> and uh, she came over and got me right away. And so that's where my sobriety started on July 3rd um, at Seton Shoal Creek. Um, that was a pretty miserable experience. Um, I didn't belong there. I was better than everybody there. Um, <laughs> lots of that ego stuff going on. I went to my first AA meeting at Seton Shoal Creek. Um, I don't even really know why. I think I was just bored. Um, but I went down. This really lovely volunteer <coughs> lady came and took me down to the meeting. And, um, and I'm not looking good. And I am <laughs> very depressed and I'm on suicide watch, so I've got my sneakers on without the shoelaces and um, it just, it's, you know, it's just not a good look. And uh, we walk downstairs into the AA meeting and I look across the room and, you know, I'd had this like real kind of high power successful job working in this field of child abuse for all these years. I spent a lot of time in Travis County Court. Um, I handled most of the child death cases coming out of Travis County for a long time, and so I was going to court for criminal trials and for civil trials, dealing with parental rights and whatnot, and there was specific judges that um, took those cases, and so I look, you know, in this AA meeting without my little shoelaces, and there is this judge that I've been in front of um, for years, and I, you know, just, oh, wow, it was not cool. <laughs> but what happened... Um, was that man looked at me with more love and understanding than I've ever been looked at in my entire life, and it absolutely floored me. Um, it just freaks me out to this day. Um, absolutely floored me. And um, that there's something about that look, um, and I thought, man, like maybe this is going to be okay. Like maybe this is going to be okay. I'm still very good friends with that man. We have lunch like every three months, and. He nods his head, well, Anna, how are you doing? Uh, <laughs> and I used to be like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to go back to school, and I'm going to make a million grades, and I'm going to be successful and rich and all this stuff. And, um, and now he's like, how are you doing? And I'm like, you know, it's just today. I'm all right. And he's like, you're getting somewhere. <laughs> you know, he's just this, I don't know, it's just great. So that was really, that was it for me. That was kind of the turning point. I um. I got sober in the rooms. I didn't go to treatment. I went back to work. I would have loved to have gone to treatment. Oh my goodness, I would have loved that. Um, but I didn't. I just I went back to work, um, and I got sober in the rooms, which was really terrifying um, because I still. Let me be very clear. I did not want to be sober. I did not want to be an alcoholic. I mean, I'm sorry, alcohol. Do you not know what my grade point average is? Um, it was just appalling to me that this is that alcohol was actually going to bring me to my knees. And so I think it's important to share that for quite a while, almost the first full year probably, I was not interested in being sober at all, but I was incredibly interested in not ever going to a psych ward again. 
um, that was really appealing to me. Like I, so really for me was a big, I don't necessarily want this thing, but I really don't want that thing. And so I'm willing to do just about anything to not do that thing. Um, I'm very grateful that it's shifted now. Um, and I really very much want to be sober and I really very much identify as a woman in recovery and an alcoholic and I'm super proud of that. Um, but it took me a long time to get there. There's no doubt about it. Um, that's not what I wanted in the beginning. So, um, so going to AA was um, not comfortable for me at all. But if I wasn't at work, that's where I was. Uh, my first home group was Western Trails because they had an 8.30 and a 10 and a noon and a 1 and a 3 and a 5.45 and a 7. And they used to have an 8.30. And I was there. <laughs> eight o'clock in the morning and I stayed and shut the place down and that was the only place I could be um, and I'm not exaggerating that's all I did for months um, I was literally terrified to be anywhere else um, so that was you know interesting um, I got a sponsor right away um, she's still my sponsor to this day which I think is pretty remarkable so we got a good 12-year relationship which is very cool um, when I need to do inventory work because we don't even look at the first two columns she doesn't care who it, who it is she doesn't care what the cause is it's like let's go straight into my defects and then let's figure out the fourth column where my part in is it so we literally start usually the inventory process backwards and we'll start in the fourth column and then we'll do a little talking about you know the different seven effects and then that I'm good um, so it's really nice to have someone that knows my instruction manual almost as well as I do she's also the only person on the planet that I'm 100% honest with love to tell you I have integrity and I have rigorous honesty I don't um, but I do with her because I can't afford not to so um, and I, I just I honor and respect that sponsor sponsor thing so much um, she's probably really cool as far as like someone I like to hang out with and stuff, but I, I have friends and I need her to stay firmly in the sponsor role. And so we meet, I go to her house every Christmas for a potluck um, and then we meet at meetings. Sometimes we'll take a walk, but um, she is strictly like, she is sponsor and I'm sponsoring and we do not cross. I need her to have full objectivity and I need her able to call me on my stuff. So um, so I keep that, that really respectful relationship with her. Um, because of the intellectual nature of my childhood, there is no God. Um, and so when I came in the rooms, I was like, what? Um, because I'd been very much uh, raised. Uh, my mom was maybe a little agnostic, but my dad was full on atheist. And so when I came in and saw the God stuff, that was not really gonna work for me. Um, that was really, really a struggle for me to, to figure out that there was gonna need to be something there. Um, quick story about my dad another good family story so my brother and I historically never really got along very well right so my dad would give us he's like y'all need to learn about the different religions that exist and so he would take a five dollar bill and rip it in half and give us each half and shove us out the door every Sunday um, and be like go to church and we'd be like so we'd get on our bikes and we would like go to the convenience store get some tape so that we could like get the five dollar bill tape back together again and cash it and here's your 250 and there's my 250 and by that point we've kind of begrudgingly gotten used to each other's company and so then we'd go pick whatever church we we're going to go to and that night at dinner we would talk about you know, like which church we went to and like what'd you think about it and so we hit every freaking church temple you name it um in denton we did that on sundays and then flash forward, I'm in college and I'm taking this philosophy of religion class, right? And um, so I call my dad and I'm like, hey, Pop, like, 
was kind of some decent parenting there, you know, to like expose us to all these different religions. That's, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. My dad's just dying laughing, and I'm like, what's up? And he's just like, honey, your mom and I just wanted to have uninterrupted sex. We had to get you out of the house. So that's that's my basis coming into AA on God. Um, so, so I struggle with it quite a bit. Um, my first God, this sounds weird, and bear with me, because it makes perfect sense to me, and my, my relationship with my God, I use the word God because I'm lazy and higher power takes too long, by the way. I don't know what it's called, but I do use that term, and I use it a lot, because I absolutely have a really strong relationship with the God now. Um, but my first God, when I really stopped and thought about it, my mother was really good about teaching me that I was responsible for everybody around me. Um, and my favorite all-time quote is from Mother Teresa, and she says, um, if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. Mm-hmm. And that might just be the loveliest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, and I know it's true because when I sit in these rooms with you guys and I belong to you and you belong to me, I get it and I feel, I feel what that is. You know what I mean? So I started to think about you know, what God meant to me um, and it's like, you know, you think about somebody that you haven't seen in a while and then they call you two days later and they're like, I was just thinking about you. Let's get coffee. You know, that's God. That's God if I've ever seen it. Right. And so my first God, um, and I still get goosebumps when I'm mindful and I'm living in the present moment, when I get to a four way stop, like that is God, right? The universe is this ginormous, like huge bigger than we can even comprehend like place universe and then here I am converging at this one spot in this ginormous universe with like three other people and for the most part we navigate through those intersections without hitting each other like that's God that's where God started for me at least and I still like again if I'm in the present moment and I'm really focused and I'm living the deal um, spiritually four-way stops always make me smile Um, and movie theaters every time I go to a movie I stop for a minute and look around the theater and think everyone sitting here right now wanted to see this movie and they picked this time in this theater that's God or it is to me so that was a kind of where I started with my God and, and it really hasn't changed too much past that. Um, the prayers are really hard for me. The, the, the thighs and nows are very weird. I didn't like it. Um, I love it now. I've got the third and the seventh memorized. I say them every day, morning and night, throughout the day when I want to throw a punch people. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I really, I think they're lovely. Um, but when I first started, you know, my sponsor said, you just have to do something to honor something bigger than you. That's all you have to do. And it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. Um, and so I w- in the morning, I would just say, whatever. And then when I went to bed, I'd say, enough. And that was kind of my agreement with myself and my God. That was the best I could do. And that was my prayer for a long time, probably a couple of years. Literally, I have whatever and enough. I had it made on these silver charms that I wore on my neck to remind me where that I came from. But that was my prayer, and I stayed sober on that. I stayed sober on it's not me. And I don't know what it is. And so, again, God gives me over and over and over again these sponsees that hate God, had a horrible experience with the church, don't want to talk about it, don't want to do it. And I just go, you know what? It's not you. Shut up. We've got work to do. Um, you'll figure it out later. And then we just, we just go through the work and, and we get there. Um, 
So that kind of took a while for me to evolve. I also really like to pray on my knees. Um, it's for me has created muscle memory. So even on days when I don't really want to and I don't really mean it, and ugh, it's just like oh, I'm going to do this thing um, before I go to bed, my body remembers all those times that I got on my knees and had gratitude. Um, and so even if I am spiritually kind of not connected and I'm feeling a little sick or whatever, just the physical act of me getting on my knees, my body's like, yes, I remember this. And there's a lot of times when I get on my knees and it's really amazing and it's really powerful. Um, I'm a big fan of doing things on a daily basis. Um, I get up in the morning and I pee first thing and brush my teeth. Um, and then I pray and meditate. Like it wouldn't occur to me to not... I would never leave the house without brushing my teeth in the morning. I would never leave the house without praying and meditating. It just would not occur to me. And I've been doing it enough years now that I just, I think it would just be weird. Um, I can't imagine not doing it. Um, I heard somewhere um, that I've really, it's stuck with me and I've really held true to it that um, when I wake up in the morning, I'm just an alcoholic, right? And the book's real clear that we can't rest on the laurels of yesterday. We only have a daily reprieve and, and, that was a bummer at first. Um, I was kind of like, but I was so good over here. Why doesn't that count over here? Um, yeah, I was not happy with that, but I get it now. Um, but when I wake up in the morning, I'm very conscious that I'm an alcoholic um, and I need to get right with my God and myself because by the time I get out of bed, I want to be an alcoholic in recovery. And so every single day, it's like shaking up the edge of sketch. Um, and to have that really like it's ingrained in my head, I wake up like, whoop, got to do some stuff, got to do some work here. Um, so I start immediately in the morning with gratitude list. I'm a big fan of gratitude list. Um, I do those day and night. Um, I think it's really, really, it's been helpful for me um, to slow down and base gratitude, right? Like I woke up and I could hear the alarm clock and then I opened my eyes and I could see and then I got out of bed and I got to walk all the way to the bathroom and pee by myself without anyone helping me or needing machinery to do that. Like, that's remarkable. There's a lot of people that don't have that story, you know? And if you can start your day with that kind of base gratitude, um, that, that's just, I don't know, everything is just gravy. Um, my father got cancer when I was in sobriety, which again, all by design, because my father's a little bit more difficult of a person than my mother, and so to have nursed my mom through cancer and to have that experience and then do it with my father in recovery um, was very helpful for me. Um, I remember early on um, being at the hospital with him and um, again the drama of the good alcoholic mind and getting on the phone at the hospital and calling someone from the program and being like my father's in the hospital you know and really wanting this whole like feel sorry for me and, and the answer I got was oh you're so blessed to get to be there and my first thought was like well that's not what I wanted to hear at all um, but what a great response how blessed you are to get to be there um, and so I got to have that experience of nursing my father um, while he was going through cancer. And I got to do that sober. And I got to do that with you guys. And I got to sit in the hospital a lot with a big book and read it. And to me, that was when I really felt like, okay, like this sobriety thing is amazing. Because I remember very clearly being terrified and as profoundly sad as a human being could possibly be and knowing that I was okay. 
that was really interesting to me to have such contradictory emotions going on. Um, but I was, and I was profoundly sad, and it was terrifying. Um, and it was exactly what was happening. And so I just adjusted my tools and I dealt with it. And that's what's really cool now. It's kind of the running joke with me and my sponsor. We'll meet whenever I'm struggling with something. And um, at the end, she'll say, well, Anna, what's the conclusion? And I'll say, this is what's happening. <laughs> because that's true. Um, I try not to assign good and bad to a lot of things because it's just, this is what's happening. Um, I drank every day for 22 years and drove drunk a lot. Um, I never got a DWI. I never killed anybody with my car. My liver still works. What is the reason for that? We got people dying every day from this disease, and I'm not one of those people today. That makes no sense to me, but I sure pay attention to it, you know? And it, it to me, indicates that I need to be doing something here, you know, which is base gratitude. Um, I don't put a lot of pressure on my days. I show up every day, and my job is to try and have God speak through me, try and run on God's will and not mine, and just be kind um, and do the next right thing. And frankly, that's a full-time job. <laughs> I mean, it really, really is. It's a full-time job. Um, between year two and three, I think it's important to share this. Um, I got a boyfriend who wasn't an addict or an alcoholic. This was exciting. This had <laughs> never happened to me before. Every single romantic relationship was just messy and chaotic. And I also picked people with worse drug and alcohol problems than me. Um, but what better way to protect my behavior, right? I'd be like, well, you know, I know I project I vomited all over the bar last night, but look at what Tommy did. Um, so, you know, I set up by design. I'm only hanging out with people that are doing the exact same things I'm doing, if not worse. And so I love my love all my ex-boyfriends they were kind of messy um just based on the nature of who I was picking but I got sober and I found this guy and he wasn't an alcoholic and he liked me which was you know amazing because I'm damaged um self-loathing is still there the self-critic voice is still there and so here's this guy who's like tall and good looking and he's not an alcoholic and he's telling me he loves me and I was super excited about that um, he was also kind of from an uppity family, and I think uh, kind of the same way that my mother wouldn't get the mail without putting on lipstick. Like, his family really didn't want to know about the alcoholic girlfriend. Um, so it was very, very downplayed, um, and I bought right into that. We're going to keep that a secret? Absolutely. Not a problem. And so I really hush-hushed the alcoholism down and um, just became just enamored with this guy and officially made him my higher power. Thank you very much, AA, for the sobriety. I do not need you anymore. Good luck to all you people that have to stay here. I have a boyfriend who's not an alcoholic. I'm good. Um, so, <laughs> so that didn't turn out so well. Um, Turns out, as God's you know, sense of humor, this guy was like emotionally damaged, like more so than any alcoholic ex boyfriend I'd ever had in my entire life. Oh, the irony. Um, I stayed in that relationship for way longer than I should have because I kept making everything my fault. Uh, I was the alcoholic, he's not. So, if any fault in the relationship, clearly it's my, it's my fault and I need to try and fix it. And so, I stayed in that relationship for longer than I wanted to to fix it. Um, I got spiritually really sick. Um, and thankfully, uh, oh, and I quit going to meetings for like a good nine, ten months. Um, but I recognized that I was really feeling icky. And so I limped into a meeting one day. Um, 
not even sure that AA was going to fix it, but I did walk into a meeting, and then I turned my head, and on the wall, there's a, a flyer for another clubhouse, and it said, you know, Kelly W. telling her story, and I was like, that's weird. My sponsor's name is Kelly W. <laughs> um, so the meeting was the next day, so I went to that other clubhouse the next day, and there's my sponsor, and she kind of cocked an eyebrow at me, you know, like, been um, went limping up to her after the meeting and said, you take me back? <laughs> um, and she did and um, did a lot of work. I did all 12 steps on this boyfriend. I am powerless over this boyfriend. It's making my life unmanageable. We used all the same principles, went through all the steps again, and then I left him and it was great. Um, and I still think he's a great guy. He's just not my guy. And I've also learned that um, I'm very capable of loving the wrong people, and that's totally okay. I'm going to love who I'm going to love, and that's my instinct. And some people I get to love really up close and personal and have them in my life, and some people I need to love you and need you to stay on the other side of the street. Um, I just don't need to invite you that close into my world. And I don't have to shame myself because I accidentally love some people that aren't so great for me all the time because it happens. Um, dating continues to be really messy for me. Um, I know we don't talk about sex a lot in mixed meetings, but I do think it's important to let you guys know that um, I was 39 when I got sober and I'd never had sex sober before. Um, that was terrifying uh, to learn how to flirt, to learn how to be intimate. These were some really, really big challenges for me um, coming in the room at 39. Um, turns out I'm shy. <laughs> so that was like really that was that was kind of interesting to learn that about myself you know um so that was a really big that was kind of a piece that was kind of hard you know hard for me to um to work through um but i think it's important to talk about those things i mean we've all been to those awkward you know aa events where everyone's like oh, i'm socially 10 and how are you <laughs> you know but i love it because i went to a christmas party last year with like my kind of normie friends and um they were just talking about you know politics or whatever and just kind of this surface level kind of conversations and based on my childhood like I am not a fan of service level conversations anymore like I really want to know like what's going on with you really yeah. <laughs> um, and so I went to that party and it was okay it was a good Christmas party whatever but then I went to this other party and it was the cutest thing these two women walked in and everyone's just kind of standing around in the living room and this woman walks in the door and does this and goes I'm really nervous I've been service for, sober for about three weeks and I am like terrified and I don't even know what to do here and we were all just like public announcement you know? and we all just kind of looked at her and we're like oh the food's in the kitchen and you know but like just owning it like she was messy and she was owning it you know what I mean it was just absolutely a delight to see um and now those I mean you guys are my people like I get to come in these rooms and um be myself. That was a really big deal for me when I first came in the rooms um was again I was raised you know my mother classic line and get that look off your face if you can't be polite you know go to your room get over it um and so when I first came in the rooms of AA and people are like crying and being angry and people are like I lost my job and the whole room erupts in applause I'm like what's happening here this is, this is weird um so it took me a while to learn how to be messy in front of you guys that it was okay to come in the rooms and say I'm having a really crap day and I really want to drink and I'm scared or I'm tired or my heart's broken or whatever, um, to be able to practice that and to do that with you guys. I will tell you that hands down, um, these rooms are the only place that just give me a meet. I walk in the door and it's just like, oh, 
you know, just immediate, immediate relief. Because uh, I never feel judged here. I always feel safe here. You guys always love me, and I love you guys, you know. And that's, that's remarkable. We've got a really cool thing going on here, you know. We really, really do. Um, I think uh, it's important to mention that I sponsor people. For me, that's probably hands down the main thing that's kept me sober is sponsoring people, um, having to, was it um, the good quote by Mark Twain that, um, is it Mark Twain? Somebody said it. Um, you don't know something unless you can uh, teach it to a seven-year-old, right? And so that's the big book to me. When I have to walk someone else through the book, I need to know it, you know, and I need to know it really well. Um, and so, and just the light, you know, watching people that light come on when they're walking through the work and they're, they're getting it is just um, really, really powerful for me. So I stay sober by working with other people. Um, I stay sober by keeping it fresh. I can't get bored or I'm not going to stick with it. So I've switched home groups. I've been sober 12 years. I've switched home groups three times. I think that's kind of important. Um, I try and do service work. Um, I try and do outside literature, spiritual literature, and uh, get involved, you know, where I can. The daily prayer and meditation um, is really also, I think, what has helped me stay sober and happy. I mean, the good news is I'm really happy today. Uh, I still have the self loving <coughs> still have the self-critical voice, um, but I can now recognize that that's just ego. And I can talk to my God about it and ask it to be removed. And my God understands that just because I ask him to remove it today doesn't mean I'm not going to be asking him two days from now the same thing. Um, but that's okay too, right? Because um, it's just, I just keep doing it every single day. Um, I want to close just real quick with my absolute, the first time I read this, it blew my mind. Um, and it's still my absolute favorite, favorite um, thing in the book because it actually gave me hope when I first came in. It's um, in it's chapter two, There is a Solution. Um, and it just really, I don't know, it just really gave me hope. It says, the tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. I mean, I love that. We've discovered a common solution. Um, and I didn't have that when I got here. And you guys gave that to me. So, so thank you for my sobriety.